The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you. Reading in Matthew's Gospel, the 14th chapter. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to Jesus and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages to buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we bow in your presence and we ask that the Holy Spirit of God would open the word of God to all the people of God. Speak, Lord, for your servants seek to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. There's only one story that's in all four Gospels, and it's this one, the feeding of the 5,000. So we're going straight for the jugular this morning, brothers and sisters. If you know an incident happened in the life of Jesus and there's any question, this one was the number one one that was so deeply placed into the memory and the hearts of the early church that it's in all four Gospels so that we pay careful attention to what it means. So I want to look at the feeding of the 5,000 and ask what it has to teach us. So if you'd be kind enough to turn with me in your Bibles at home, for those of you who are following, and if you've got your PDA or your Pew Bible, we're in Matthew 14, beginning at the 13th verse. And uh, about this famous scene, I want to make four observations. The circumstances of the miracle, the cause of the miracle, the components of the miracle, and the conclusion of of the miracle. Again, the circumstances of the miracle, the cause of the miracle, the components of the miracle, and the conclusion of the miracle. So straight into the text, if you please. First of all, the circumstances. Now when Jesus heard this, you see where I am? Verse 13, what is the this that is being referenced? His cousin has just died. His cousin has just been beheaded. It's an adumbration. It's a foreshadowing of the malevolent evil that awaits Jesus at the end of his life. It, it is incurring itself into his family. It is a traumatic event. This is the friend and cousin who baptized him in the River Jordan as he began his public ministry. How do you react when you lose a dear friend or a dear family member? Things change. So when it says Jesus heard this, you have to place yourself in the situation where he's experiencing deep grief, which means he goes away to regroup, 
to get a sense of perspective. He withdrew from there in a boat. He's trying to process what has happened to his cousin in the middle of the unfolding events of God in his life. It's about his rhythm. Point number one is simple. Life is difficult. Cousins and family members die. And then what you see in this text is, when he goes ashore, he's immediately confronted with a big problem. And so I'm not going to rope Father Craig in with me this morning, but I would just, if I insert myself into the story, and so when he came to the shore, he saw a great crowd, and he said, look, you guys just have to realize, it's been a rough week, it's been a terrible day. So I'm staying here, and you need to go away. This isn't a good time for me. Not what he says. Not the way life works. Not the way Jesus' ministry works. M. Scott Peck in the book, The Road Less Traveled. How many times have we quoted it from this pulpit? Life is difficult. Jesus takes the grief and the circumstances and goes into them, not around them. Just one quick story from church history. I was in a conversation on Friday with a friend of mine, and he just cavalierly mentioned, oh, uh, Father Nicola Yanni, this, that, and the other thing. He was talking about an Eastern Orthodox priest earlier in American history. And as he described this individual about whom I'd literally never heard in my life, I stopped him and I said, wait, start again? Excuse me? And he started describing this Eastern Orthodox priest who ministered in the late 19th and early 20th century in the Midwest of the United States. Now, I want you to listen to this for a second because I want you to try to get your mind around it. I still haven't finished trying to yet. This is his parish, his geographical territory. Ready, Father? From Missouri to Colorado, from Oklahoma to North Dakota. In other words, essentially, he, he ministered in the late 19th and early 20th century in the Great Plains of the United States on horseback and occasionally by train and sometimes on foot in very difficult weather, in very difficult terrain. And he did it in the middle of all sorts of difficult circumstances, including, highly relevant for our times, the Spanish influenza of 1918. His ministry is amazing to read about and think about. For example, he would come to visit a family sometimes once every two years. Sorry, but he had too much territory to cover. That's all the time he had. So he would do a baptism for a family's kids. Sometimes they, he left, and two years later he came back, and there were two children that he baptized. This is the kind of life that he led. There was a 16-year-old girl who died with the Spanish flu when he got to Kansas, to Wichita, who had caused a, a citywide panic, and he couldn't even do her funeral in the main parish that was there in Kansas because it was closed because of the pandemic. He had to do it somewhere else. This is the way that ministry happens. This is the way that life works. Not around difficulties, but in them and through them. Highly relevant for our times. We stand on the shoulders of Father Nicolaiani. We stand on the shoulders of our Lord. And we find ourselves at this time in this place. My wife is running around the house every once in a while yelling because every other memo from MUSC has in this unprecedented time. And so I'll be sitting at my desk and I don't even have the door open and I'll hear my wife say, and here it is again in this unprecedented time. Well, it's an unprecedented time, it's a challenging time, but it's no surprise to God and therefore it should be no surprise to us. We keep going, not around the circumstances, 
right? Not over them or under them, but through them, just like Jesus did. Life is difficult. You with me so far? Two, what caused this whole scene to unfold? It's right there in verse 14. It's the key to the whole story. It's just one word in English and Greek, but it's absolutely crucial that we understand what it means. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He didn't do what I said. He didn't dismiss them and say he had a bad day, and it wasn't a good time. It says, and I quote, he had compassion on them. Splongizomai in Greek, which comes from splongna, which means inward parts. It means kidneys. It means guts. It comes from a time in history when people understood the seat of emotions to be in the guts, in the kidneys, in the inward parts. It, this is the word that you and I would use today to describe the heart, that person's heart, who they are. It's out of the heart that life comes. That's, this is what they understood. So when you see splongizomai and you think of splankna and you think of inward parts, you've got to think of the guts of the person, the very heart. This is Jesus' heart that is provoked. And this word splongizomai, translated have compassion, means this. It means and this is very important this morning, it means you have to put yourself in the position of the other person to the extent that you feel their pain as if it were you. There's a very good Indian saying I like to quote when I talk about this verb. The Indians say, if you really want to understand a man, you have to walk for two miles in his moccasins. That's what this word means. Now, while we're all together, can I just remind you that this is the word, this is the word that's used in the two most famous parables Jesus ever told. This is the word that's used of the father when the prodigal son returns and it says, he came back and it says, after it says he ran and he kissed him and all that stuff, it said, and he had compassion on him. The first thing the father did in the parable of the prodigal son is he had compassion. He thought about what it was like to be far from home and to be away from one's family and to be estranged and to be a mess and to be lost. He put himself in that position because he'd been worried about him and praying about him every single day. This is the Father's word. This is the Father's heart. And this is the word in the parable of the Good Samaritan when it says, as after the Levite and the priest passed by and they went to seminary, so they messed up. Right? Then you get the Good Samaritan, it says, and he had compassion on him, which means what? It means he stopped and asked the question, what if I were this guy, beat up and left in the road, as if I were half dead, and no one knew who I was? What would it be like to be that person? And the whole parable unfolds as a result of that compassionate response. This is the word, the word that's used of the Father, the word that's used of the Good Samaritan, this is the word. Christ is provoked. He says, these people need help. They need healing. They need ministry. If I were them, I would want me to do this, therefore I do this. This entire thing is set in motion by the compassion of Christ. Don't ever miss this, brothers and sisters. The God whom we serve is a compassionate God. I've cited to you before, and I want to make sure you hear it again, what Eugene Peterson's son said that his father's sermon was over 50 years. He preached his father's funeral. One of my heroes, Eugene Peterson, writer on spiritual things, Presbyterian minister, and his son preached his funeral and said, I can basically sum up my dad's entire message to me in four statements. God loves you. He's on your side. 
He's coming after you. He's relentless. I want to zero in on those first two for just a second. God loves you. He's on your side. That's what this means. Do you believe this this morning? In yesterday's London Times, Madeline Davies is out with a brand new book on grief. She lost her mother at a relatively young age and has been trying to process it ever since. One of the ways that she's processed it is she's written a book about grief. In her book, just released this week, she says this, listen carefully, this is important. For me, the belief that God was not unmoved by what happened to my family, that he shared our sorrow, was a turning point in my grief. Again, the belief that God was not unmoved by what happened to my family, that he shared our sorrow, was a turning point in my grief. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own, says C.S. Lewis in The Magician's Nephew, that for a moment he felt as if the lion must have really been sorrier about his mother than he was himself. This is the God with whom we have to do. Do not ever believe, brothers and sisters, that God does not care about you and your family, what you are going through, how you are feeling. You are not alone, and you are not uncared for. The compassionate Christ is the Christ to whom you pray. The compassionate Christ is the one who walks alongside you. Do you know this in this time of pandemic? Do you believe it? First, the circumstances. Second, the cause. Third, the components. Really simple, right? A problem. Some disciples, disciples do what I would have done, which is send the people away. And Jesus says, no, it's not, a, it's not a problem. It's an opportunity. You fix it. And they said, verse 17, the whole thing hinges on this also. Uh, I'm sorry, Lord, just, just in case you didn't realize, we have a big problem. There's 5,000 men. There's a lot of people, five loaves, two fish. This isn't going to work. Even we can do that math. It's not good. We're fishermen. We can count fish. We can count nets. We can count boats. This is, a, this is not going to work. And Jesus says, nah, 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 nah. Little things are not little things, brothers and sisters, in the kingdom of God. Little things given over to Jesus, lifted up to heaven, prayed for, blessed, and distributed. They're enough. Little things are more than enough. And as the disciples go row to row, that which they distribute comes back at the end of the row, and the basket still has bread, and the basket still has bread, and the basket still has fish. In fact, when you get to the end, it says, verse 20, and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Not only is there enough, there's more than enough. Which brings us to the conclusion of the miracle, which is that God provides, right? Nobody has this story etched permanently in their memory who was there that day for any other reason than this. God took care of them in every conceivable way. Not simply healed them, but bless them with the reality of Christ's compassion and bless them with a reminder of God's power and God's character and God's love. There is always enough. There is more than enough. Now listen, this is important. You need to run this up against an aspect of the first three chapters of the Bible that's not often thought about. That interesting story when Adam and Eve are there and there's a river and there are trees and there's a garden and they're richly blessed, and they're walking with God in the afternoon, and everything is well. All shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, until this slithering somebody or other shows up and starts asking questions. Did God say? 
right? And there's so many dimensions of that question that Satan is asking. But the one that's crucial for our purposes is simply this. What is Satan doing? He's undermining their trust in the character of God, and he's doing it by saying what? Are you sure there's enough? On the face of it, it's a ludicrous claim because they have literally everything in the garden in front of them except one tree. But he's turned it around and made it an act of deprivation rather than an act of provision. And he's speaking to the guts of the human condition, which is we're always worried that there's not enough. Are you sure that God's really on your side? Are you sure that God's love? Are you sure that there's going to be enough? And we all worry about whether there's going to be enough. And this story is etched in the permanent memory of the early church and passed on to us to make sure that we never forget that there will always be enough, that God is Jehovah Jireh, the provider. He has always provided for his church's needs. He provided before, he will provide again. One last story and then a couple observations and I'm done. I was reading, as I sometimes do, about Canada this week and I came across a wonderful story from Vancouver about a woman who's in her 20s named Marilyn Soriano and what happened to her over the last week. Her mother died last year of cancer at the age of 53. She works in a, in a store in Vancouver. She and her fiance were moving. This is just last week. As they were moving, they were, you, you know, it's like, you all know move is a four-letter word, right? So, I mean, it was, it was total chaos. As, as she and her fiancé are moving into this new place, she gets a call from one of her friends that's had a bad uh, mishap on one of the highways and is in extreme need, and so she has to leave the move. And as she does, she leaves, and she leaves a bag outside the apartment, and it gets lost track of it. In the bag is a Build-A-Bear bear that her mother had made her. Now, this is a teddy bear, and I actually brought a picture this morning, which I'm hoping, there, ta-da. Now, I want you to look at that bear, and I want you to think about this for a second. That may look like a small bear to you, but to Marilyn Soriana, it was the bear of all bears. It was the most important thing in the world. In fact, she lost in that bag a book of blank checks, she lost her citizenship card, and she lost some electronics. But she said, and I quote, the bear was more important than all those things. Why was the bear so important? Because it was dressed like her mom, and her mom recorded a voice message which the bear played, which said, I love you, I'm proud of you, I will always be with you when you squeeze it. Now we're talking about somebody in their 20s, right? So this is a mushy nursery story. No, it's not. This is deadly serious adult stuff. This is, what her, mo this is her mom's legacy. She's just lost her mom last year. The one thing that she didn't want to lose... So finally, I get to say something good about social media. Praise God. She put a notice, she put that picture, and she put a note up on social media, and she said, look, I, I need you to know something. I lost my bear. It's the world to me. Please help me get my bear back. And Ryan Reynolds, the actor, and a bunch of other people, a peanut butter company, they all got together. They came up with a $15,000 reward. And it took, a, it took a week, but last week she lost it. This week she got it back. And I quote, it just means everything to me, honestly. There was a part of me I thought I'd never see again. And they said, we have only two loaves, sorry, five loaves and two fish. 
It's only a teddy bear. Who cares? Don't tell that to her. Little things are not little things. And the community came together and God came through. Because little things matter and the compassionate God who cared for her is the compassionate God who cares for the crowd. So what have I said, brothers and sisters? I've said really simple things. Life is difficult. Christ is compassionate. Little things are not little things. And God will provide. You could hardly get more relevant in our time than that. Do not this week, promise me, do not underestimate the compassion of the Christ that walks alongside you in this, yes, I'm actually going to say it, in this unprecedented time. And also, do not underestimate those little prayers and that little Bible study and those little email notes of encouragement and those little things that you say to your friends, which are the difference between night and day. Because, brothers and sisters, on things like that, Nothing less than the kingdom of God moves forward in our world. Life is difficult. Christ is compassionate. Little things are not little things. And God will provide because there's enough. Indeed, there's more than enough. As there was now, as there was then, so there is now. As we are seated, let us pray. Lord, thank you that you are the God who brings teddy bears back. Thank you that you are the God who and take five loaves and two fishes and make them enough and more than enough for a crowd of over 5,000 people. And thank you that you're enough for us, Lord. And in the midst of our difficulties, give us a renewed appreciation for your compassion for us and where we walk and where we live and move and have our being. And give us a renewed trust and a renewed faith that you who walk alongside us will take us into the future where you want us to go and you will provide enough and even more than enough, and you will take us where you want us to go. In Jesus' precious name.